Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. We're part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I am joined by a very special guest. He is part of the Mile High Sports family as well, doing some podcast coordination, as well as some other projects, I think, that are, that have not yet come to light, but I think are going to be very exciting. It is the King of Thornton himself, Jeff Morton. Uh, King of Thornton uh, at jmorton78 on Twitter. Jeff, how are you, sir? Used to be King, uh, King of Thornton on on uh, Twitter, and uh, I was the idiot who changed that, and uh, then lost the ability to reclaim King of Thornton. So that is <laughs> it was perhaps the worst decision <laughs> you have ever made in your life. I, I think so. <laughs> Uh, no, there's certain things there's certain things you can't come back from and apparently this is the one one of them i <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you on because I, I do think that one of the things that we have both discussed as part of kind of my transition to mile high sports but also just sort of the mm-hmm. the general future of, of what we're we, we like the sports world and the entertainment world to look like is is for those to kind of be able to be discussed together given how similar a lot of these aspects are. I, I think when you mm-hmm. when you boil it down to it, uh, I was a sport I was a sport management major actually in college. So mm-hmm. this is where my my learning actually applies. Uh, yeah. but this is uh like the sports entertainments, uh, all of like if you're doing concerts, if you're doing productions of sort sort, it, it really is all the same thing. And it's just like yeah. different versions of the same thing. And so I feel like it in a lot of ways, it generates the same reaction, generates the same emotions in, in yeah. various fashions uh, that will that sports will. So we we are always very tied closely to the entertainment world. I do want yeah. to leave that for the second half of our sec for the second half of our podcast. But for the first yeah. half, I'm going to ask you. I, I know you're commenting a little bit on summer league. And I was I was just wanting to get your general thoughts on, on how you thought the the rookies performed and how the Nuggets performed at summer league so far. Yeah, my, my analysis of summer league is is simply this: people were concerned about the offense at summer league, and then we're not acknowledging that the Denver Nuggets assembled a squad that was almost entirely made up of defense first players, <laughs> other than maybe Colin Gillespie. This was this is a squad that was offensively challenged from the beginning, and it's like I I don't know I, I, I whenever I look at the analysis of summer league I am always shocked at how much people read into it because I I have seen I mean summer league summer league became more of a prominent thing in the early two thousands. Right. Uh, but it really picked up steam in the in the late 2000s into the early 2010s. Uh, Warren Legary, um, George Carl's old agent, um, uh, was the guy who basically created Summer League in Vegas and really has the market corner. So like when people get credentialed, you're not going through the NBA. You're going through the people who run Summer League. Right. And. I've always been surprised at the people who go to summer league and take, or, or then watch summer league and take it seriously insofar as you can't tell anything. These are glorified scrimmages. Um, you're just, you're just not seeing the best basketball out there. And I've 
my fa- my go-to line, as I'm sure you've seen, Ryan, over the years, is uh, Nicholas Skidishvili was the MVP of the 2003 Summer League. And I always leave it at that. And what I'm telling people is that do not take this shit seriously. It is not worth your time. Wait till we get to preseason before we start to analyze these people. But to answer your question about the rookies, they all look like rookies to me. I mean, I... Uh, they're rookies amongst rookies and second year players and all this stuff at summer league Christian, Christian Brown. And I'm got to get used to saying Brown and not Braun. Um, Christian Brown couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Uh, Peyton Watson looked like a project. Um, Gillespie looked like he had it together and uh, Kamigate looked like he needed some serious seasoning. We knew all that going into summer league and absolutely nothing changed so i'm like what how i I mean maybe i should throw it back to you what was your takeaway because at least you pay more attention to this thing what was your takeaway well pay attention i think is definitely giving me a little bit too much credit here but i I did (laughs) i did watch the games i did uh kind of was was appalled at the at the overall level at some points but I think my general feel was that it, I think it has just a different level of impact than what Bones' summer league was last year. Uh, his, his level of summer league and what he showed, what he was really emphasizing at that point, I do think it was tangible and I do think it was valuable. Uh, it, I think it really set the stage for him where he was successful at summer league. He was successful in preseason and Though it took him a while to kind of get adjusted to the NBA and his new role, he eventually found uh, a role that really suited him, and he was successful at the NBA. So there are players, I think, that you when you see them succeed, then it's a good indication of things to come. Uh, and then I also think about Zeke Naji in that same summer league and how yeah. he was horrible. He was just absolutely horrible, not defensively, yeah. but but offensively uh, right. during that stretch and. You think about that and you think about Christian Brown, you think about Peyton Watson and some of these guys, like there are certain traits that you're hoping that they show. With Christian Brown, I, I would have hoped that he would have hit some more shots or at least look more comfortable hitting some shots and taking some shots because it looked like he was uh, throwing up a medicine ball at there at times. But it's tough. Like like you said, it's only summer league. These are, these are very brief takeaways and very brief sample sizes and whatnot. And I... I did come away with a feeling about the same as I did on draft night. Well, it's yeah, our um, boss here at my life sports is his wife is an alum of KU. And she could probably tell you that Christian Brown, his percentages are very much hot and cold. Mm-hmm. And so you average out hot and cold. It reminds me of, of Sean Leonard, but Sean Leonard would hit everything and then hit nothing. And it was it was just it was just like that. And they call them streaky shooters. Um, And Christian Brown seems very much to me like a streaky shooter. The problem with three and D guys is that they depend almost exclusively on how much energy they are producing on the defensive end and how that affects their shots. And that is why the good ones are don't necessarily have a tremendously high percentage of threes, but they're good enough. Um, and all I'm looking for from uh, 
Christian Brown is to be good enough. He's not here to be Mr. Offense. He's here to to be another defender primarily who can contribute offense. Um, so I think that part is where I'm not like, yeah, I, that's why I shrugged. I'm like, it, 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 this is exactly who I thought he was. So I'm not looking for that. He played good defense and I, I'm like, that's okay. That that's exactly what I see. He's doing exactly the things that I see. Um, Watson is the one where I still like, I still don't know what the nuggets were doing. Um, and what the summer league did with this one was kind of just kind of prove my opinion that maybe they should have taken him at 31, not 30 to where he could have that second round contract <clears throat> because they're, he's guaranteed a roster spot now and he is definitely a project. And so that part is if I'm going to take anything away secondarily from summer league, it's that it's like Hayden Watson had one good game and four pretty sketchy games. And yeah. he looked like a guy who is offensively challenged to the extreme. And I'm wondering if like the nuggets couldn't have picked him up in the second round. And that's just what the thought that keeps coming back to my head, man, it just keeps going back. Yeah. It's like, they, they bought a pick to go get Ismail Kamigate in the second round at 46. I, I know having spoken to Gordon Gross about this, our mutual friend, uh, he always views it as Kamigate is the 30th pick and Peyton Watson was the 46th pick, but they had to get uh, Peyton Watson at 30. And I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that they went and, and got a first round pick in order to get somebody like him because the four-year contract I do think actually matters for him specifically. You got him on the cheapest possible first-round deal that you could get, and you get four guaranteed years, which means that you have kind of a long runway to allow him to develop. Because in theory, it, it makes sense as a guy that can develop into the player that you're hoping for, which I think is just this this six foot eight defensive do it all, uh, do enough offensively type. Which, if he gets there. That's a really valuable piece. There are very few players in the NBA that can kind of replicate that. But like you said, he is just so far away that it's I, – I, I start thinking like, okay, Bruno Caboclo was two years away from being two years away. Uh, this, this sort of feels the same in terms of, okay, yeah, two years away from being two years away. Uh, we're probably not going to see the best of Peyton Watson until his second contract. It, you know, in, in, I want to throw this out there. You were you brought up um, um, having a long runway. What concerns me is the roster spot. I, mm. I, I don't care about the contract because the second round contracts can be extended. Those guys are really at the mercy of the organization. I'm 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 not really uh, concerned about that sort of potential. Uh, the roster spot is what bugs me because the guaranteed roster spot is. Say, like, if they wanted to bring up someone who was kicking ass unexpectedly, but they've got a guy who's taken up a roster spot who is a, a project to potentially be a project, which leads to maybe a good player and down the road. If you've got that progression, that is what bugs me. It's like the guy is going to be occupying a roster spot. And in a, in a 
win now window, and people have heard me say this over and over on the Morecast, but in a win now window, you just you got to your moves are finite. You got to everything can hinge on a player on the uh, even on the back end because injuries happen, stuff happens, and I just don't see that pick as necessary. And that is my dispute with it. And nothing, and what the point I'm making is nothing I saw in Summer League dissuaded me from that. You know? And it's not surprising. Like, everybody, I think, knew that he was going to be a project. The, the Nuggets have advertised him as a project as certainly as they possibly could. Uh, so we're, we're just going to have to take their word for it at this point that, hey, if, if you do have the vision, then that's great. If this doesn't pan out, then it's it's not going to be like it's probably going to be at least two years before we can really say for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very fascinating to think about what it yeah. looks like and how he operates, how the Nuggets kind of operate with them. So should be fascinating. But mm-hmm. I do want to now transition into the other part of the Nuggets discussion that we're having. This to me feels like. A championship year. Mm-hmm. It feels like the the prerequisite for that has been met, which is everybody's talking about championship. They've made mm-hmm. championship caliber moves, and mm-hmm. they have the championship caliber cast of characters that uh, you 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 had the the down years for a little bit, and now you're kind of getting back to this place where it starts to feel fun again. Uh, do you feel that? Do you sense that? Um, I think, let me answer that by saying, um, I think they improved the starting lineup and that was important. Um, I don't think they necessarily added, um, the interesting thing about this is that I think as long as this nugget starting lineup is out there, they're going to be great. I am less confident in what's behind them and that with any championship team with as much money as the nuggets have devoted to the top end obviously you're not going to have a lot of room to make the roster stacked basically um so i i think my questions before i get to a championship feel i need to know how the backup center situation is going to shake out um, I, I think that's number one. And number two, how much they're relying on Bones being this backup point guard and if they have a plan B for Bones, if he's more of a two, you know. So <clears throat> other than that, I need the, I, I guess what I'm saying is I need those two questions answered because I think they did the right thing with the starting lineup. And this is a they've improved their win totals, barring health, with the, what they added on the starting lineup. The other aspect is I just don't know the other questions. And, you know, maybe you could answer, but, you know, look, obviously they did not see, sign DeAndre Jordan to have him play. This was, this was, I think, a locker room thing. That's just my interpretation. Um, I think Jeff Green really wanted him on the roster right. and lobbied, lobbied hard to get him on the roster. And I think you're not solving your backup center issue with him, but are you solving it with Vlaco Chanchar or um, uh, Zeke Naji? You know, I, I don't know. 
and maybe, maybe and once again, I'm going to rely on you on this. Do you think that I'm making too big a deal of the backup center position? I don't think you're making too big of a deal of it. I think that that's if you're if you're coming into the season with a checklist of items, that was probably the last one in terms of the standard rotation. Uh, you had to improve the starting lineup. You had to make sure that you had some bench defense, and they did that. Uh, and then the backup center and figuring out what to do with that was probably third on that checklist. They did the first two as well as they possibly could. I, I really do believe that, that KCP was probably the best player they could trade for reasonably. And you like uh, Bruce Brown. And I, I really like Bruce Brown. I think he's going to be very good. Like One of the reasons why is he's going to be probably a 25 to 30 minute per game player in the playoffs, and he can play with just about everybody. And, and that utility, I think, makes things easier for not just when you have an injury, but when you're trying to sick guys out and come up with these rotations, it's really, really easy to just plug Bruce Brown in as the third option on, on a lot of these rotations when Jokic or Murray is sitting. Um, but what I will say is I think you hit it that this roster, as you've mentioned, is so skewed top-heavy to the point where it's, it's never been this top-heavy in Denver's history, I don't think. Uh, it's yeah. it's at least very possible that that's the case. Yeah. Back in the 2018-19 season, if you remember, they had Monte Morris, they had Mason Plumley, they had Malik Beasley coming off the bench. I think they had mm-hmm. uh, Trey Lyles coming off the bench at that point as well. But yep. Yep. Uh, there were just a lot of like there was a lot of talent on the bench, and it was one of Denver's biggest assets was that they always won those bench minutes, and their starting lineup didn't have to be as good in order for them to win games. They still won 54 games that way. Now, rather than have like the 15th best first player of uh, first option and the, and the 20th best second option, they have the first best first option or, or, or second best first option in the entire NBA. And they have probably in terms of second options, I think Murray's top 10. Uh, Porter's probably top 10 in terms of third options in the NBA. And so you, you start to really skew that talent like that, and you're going to leave some some gaps on the back end. But to your point, Bones Highland, a lot of pressure on him. I've been thinking about this a lot ever since they kind of reconfigured the bench the way that they did. Yeah, There is so little usage on that bench outside of Bones. You have Bones... Bruce Brown, who's like a 18% usage guy, if that. You have Zeke Naji, who's around the same. You have Jeff Green, who's even lower than that. And you have Davon yeah. Reed, who's about the same as Jeff Green. And when you combine yeah. all those together, you're supposed to get 100. That's, that's what you're supposed to do is get 100% usage. Bones is going to have to have like a 35% usage in order to do that, which is like a Russell Westbrook-esque, a James Harden-esque usage. It's it's higher than Nikola Jokic. He might have a higher usage than Nikola Jokic does, which is insane to me. And (laughs) and when you – they're going to have to stagger, but because you have to stagger, like that's actually going to change your starting lineup and you can't play that lineup as often. So there's a lot to think about. There's a lot of juggling to do. And it's it's just going to be tough to to see it until it happens. Well, 
my concern with the with the center thing was was is primarily because the Nuggets just until they got boogie last year, the the, the center situation was terrible. It was awful, and I don't know if they can count on a backup five being Zeke Naji and uh, uh, Vlatko Chanchar. I just don't know if that is something that you can rely on. But aside from that, the point you're making about loans is interesting because obviously he's never been in this position before, but where else is the offense going to be coming from? Because we're also relying on Michael Malone staggering, which is not something that he is exemplary at. So if he's committed to staggering, then it's not going to be as big of a deal. Maybe Jamal plays with the second unit, maybe Mike plays with the second unit. There's 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 ways that they can uh, adjust that, and if he's able to do it, and if he wants to stagger, that would probably cover up a lot of the offensive issues on the second unit, and maybe maybe Bones's uh, usage goes down. And you know, and to clarify something here, I'm not ragging on Nuggets here because you know I think they did the most important thing, which was shoring up their starting lineup. That is number one, and that is by far the first thing they needed to do. And moving on from Will Barton was a big part of that. Um, and the cost of moving on from Will was giving up Monte Morris. <clears throat> and it is what it is. But you moved on and you upgraded, which is by far, by far the most important thing. So the Nuggets will be a better team this year. I have zero doubt about this. They'll be probably a much better team this year right. just by that. Um, I have little concerns and, um, sometimes little concerns could turn into big concerns and that, but that's where my, the way my brain works. So whatever. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like if, if we're, if, and I, I asked this on Twitter, I asked this to people, what is the one word that comes to mind when they think about what are the roadblocks for the Nuggets to win a championship this year? And I do think that it's an important question. By far the most the most common one was injuries. It was health. It was injuries. That's what people are most concerned about. And I think that's a very fair, realistic concern where you have Jamal Murray coming off of an ACL tear. He hasn't played. Uh, the, he's supposed to be fully healthy. They're probably going to ramp him up just a little bit. But even when you account for Murray being back fully healthy and Porter having a fully healthy season – uh, from a back perspective, a twisted ankle is still going to do a lot of the same things with with how top heavy the rotation is. Like, how are you going to survive some of those minutes where, let's say, Murray has to sit out a game, but he was the guy that was staggering with the second unit? Do you now stagger Porter? Do you just play Bones by himself? How does it work? All of these questions, I think, are very fair, and. That is definitely the most common thing where, where people are like, okay, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, kind of hold up the brakes just a little bit here. The Nuggets, right. I think, have to prove that they are going to be healthy. 100%. Uh, that is the ultimate decider, obviously, is the injuries because injuries did them in last year. Let's be honest with you. It's, yeah. Um, as soon as PJ Dozier went down, you knew it was going to go not what you wanted to because it was by a that sinking point, ship. Like at that point, for, <laughs> for whatever reason, because you had you had Jokic go down with his uh, I think it was a thumb injury at that point, and so mm -hmm. he missed six games. And in the midst of that, 
PJ Dozier tears his ACL just out of nowhere. And you're just left with thinking, man, now you're not, you don't have Murray, you don't have Porter, you don't have Jokic, and now you don't even have PJ freaking Dozier. Like, like right. you're just you're just dropping like flies. It was a cursed season last year. Denver can't have that happen again. No. Well, and usually cursed seasons be followed up with relatively health, healthy seasons. That's the, the 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 pattern in the NBA is that you these are these things are cyclical and they they're completely they're not as random as people say they are. Um, some team every team cycles through years where they have get the worst end of the injury book, and and it's just the nature of the wear and tear of the league, and um, where the Nuggets have I think an advantage here is I people have overcomplicated the Michael Porter Jr. thing. Either he can play or he can't. I mean, I mean that is really. The only thing you need to answer with Michael Porter Jr. Either he can play or he can't. Either he's physically either able to play or he can't. That's it. It's a simple, simple thing. There's no other question with Michael Porter Jr. Because there's no doubt that he wants to be out there. And that's why he probably had a setback last year. Because he really wanted to be out there. So I'm not worried about that with Mike. Either he can play or he can't. Um, I do have some issues and I'm lingering questions about Jamal. That's, and that's me. I have questions about how mentally ready he's able to play. And that's kind of, that's me looking at it from a 10,000 foot perspective. I have no information at all on Jamal. I, I just, I just based on the way they're talking already about him not playing much, doesn't really concern me because that's typical for coming back from an ACL. But a lot of it seemed to be like, make sure Jamal's mentally ready to come back. And I think that's the biggest hurdle. And sometimes that's the most complicated hurdle. And if Jamal is able to come back and I don't care about his physical state because Jamal's played through injuries, um, plenty. I, I can, I worry, I worry about the mental state and if he he's never suffered through the, anything like this in his life. So if he's mentally able to come back, there is where the nuggets hinge point is. It's not Mike. It's Jamal. And, and if Jamal is mentally able to be fully engaged in there, then the nuggets will be a borderline special team next year. It's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, that's definitely the most common roadblock. I think that people propped up. It was the, the health of those two guys specifically, uh, the bench, as you mentioned, definitely a big roadblock. The other three that I do want to mention here that get okay. the most run, the first one is defense. And I'm not really surprised by that, given where Denver was. I do think that they added the requisite pieces in order to just get better. And we will see whether that actually happens or not. We'll see whether... Uh, these guys can make an immediate impact or if it's just a a hope that they can impact things in the playoffs a little bit more. We'll see. Uh, but that's one. Yeah. The second one, I think, is Bones' readiness. And maybe that that's kind of tied in with the bench. But I do think that there's sort of an intrinsic belief that he's going to make a leap, whether it's a Jordan Poole leap or a Tyrese Maxey leap or something akin to that from year one to year two. Uh, the hope is that he leaps. 
if he doesn't, then I think you're left in a situation where, man, they put a lot of eggs in this basket, and now there really isn't another solution, as, as I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'm. That's where I'm wondering. Uh, they 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 signed uh, Gillespie to a two way. So I'm wondering if that is the hedge right there, and see if they have. Maybe we need a Monte Morris esque type behind uh, Bones, because Bones is. I, it's interesting they're putting that that much trust in him <clears throat> for as much volume shooting as he could do and have zero conscience um, as far as that goes. Sometimes it's good to have a Monte Mars type saying like, okay, I got to get this ball to someone else over here. Like I'm trying to envision he and Mike playing in the same second unit. Actually, no. And I, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it, it, it's smooth. It's I think there are some good things that they could do, uh, and one of the one of the things that you hope for in a situation like that is you surround them with other capable defenders like a Bruce Brown, like a Christian Brown, a Davon Reed, and a Zeke Naji, and, and you just kind of hope that those guys in that situation can can carry the defense while Bones and and MPJ do their thing offensively. Every, everybody's wanted. Uh, Mike to kind of step up in that regard and really be that first option yeah. in those sort of situations. So this is the the right time to do it, and then we'll just we'll see if he's ready for it. But uh, the the last one is uh is Michael Malone for for whatever reason I, I heard a lot of people talking about Michael Malone and 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 whether they could actually I guess whether the Nuggets could kind of get over the hump with him and. I think that they can. Like, I don't, I don't see that as a massive roadblock, but he also hasn't coached beyond the Western Conference finals yet. And all of those different levels are going to provide their own challenges. And when I mean coaching, I mean head coaching. Um, it's all just going to provide unique challenges. And it's not just going to be for Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. It's also going to be for, for Michael Malone and, and what he has to do. Uh, in order to get the most out of his team. And and sometimes it's going to mean pushing on some buttons that, that people are going to be upset when you push them. Yeah. Um, I'll look at it this way. Uh, regardless of where, whether what people think of Michael Malone, he has this year. Um, he has this year to prove that he is a championship coach. Now, in a lot of ways, that's unfair because – the NBA is a player's league. So if you have the requisite players playing on a string within themselves and they know which, what to do um, it's the players that will dictate who wins and loses. It's rarely the coach, rarely the coach in the NBA. Um, uh, the coach where he excels is rotations. Um, and Malone has been um, both good and terrible at it and it's 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 hard to get a read on him as a coach when he's all over the map with his rotations and sometimes the and and sometimes they it, i think it, it's to the detriment because it, it's the remnant i was just put it to this way it's the remnant of coaching a rebuilding team 
there's a reason rebuilding coaches don't often make it to championship coaches because there is a whole different set of th- considerations that you need from players, multi-million dollar players with egos who are stars as it is to, to the other end where you're a rebuilding team. And it's just, it's almost like you're a college coach then. So you can really have the control and all this stuff. Michael Malone, if he's going to be a better coach this year, has to give up control a lot. He is going to have to learn that he cannot be micromanaging everything. And this is his year to prove it. I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that is the most fascinating thing for me this year is if Malone can adapt to giving up that kind of control and moving towards a more of a CEO role like George Carl had his last year's, or, I mean, even Phil Jackson would let Tex winner and uh, Jim Clemens and all these other coaches coach for him in those ways. Um, Greg Popovich with um, his, he has tons of assistant coaches like uh, uh, who have been like that through the years, Bruce, uh, um, uh, Brett Brown and uh, um, uh, Mike Budenholzer, both prime examples of that. Um, so uh, I'm, that is where I'm looking at it. People always accuse me and there's going to be people listening to this like, ah, she's bashing Malone again. I don't know. I brought it up. It's okay. <laughs> and I think he deserves a year, complete year, to prove that he can be that next level coach. To me, he's a good coach. Um, I need to see if he can loosen the grip in order to become a great coach. Over the course of the last month, two months or so, in when he's spoken to the media, spoken about what the Nuggets need, it's all it's been about defense, it's been about committing. But he's also had these lines here or there where it's not just about the new additions. It's about getting the same players to commit defensively. It's about finding better ways to defend. And that that applies to the players, coaches, etc. And And I do think that this is a great opportunity for him to prove himself. They did a nice job. I'm not sure who was the catalyst behind it other than Jokic saying that he likes to play at the level of the screen. But when they made that change, when they made that transition, that's when they finally had their defensive leap. It wasn't when they added Paul Millsap. It was when they added that level of aggressive defense or at least mixed it in. Now teams have kind of figured it out. It's, it's, that was 2018-19. That was 2018-19, 2019-20, 2021-22. So it's been four years. And now you have to come up with the next thing. How do you defend with Nikola Jokic? How do you defend with Michael Porter Jr.? How are these perimeter-based teams going to attack you? And how can you head them off at the pass? That is his next challenge. And I do think that it's one that he can solve, that the Nuggets can solve. But it's going to take time. It's going to take efforts. It's going to take a tremendous amount of buy-in, I think, from everybody in terms of orchestrating and, and kind of applying this new scheme and whether they use this new scheme immediately. He hasn't really specified that immediately, but I, I sort of get the sense that they're going to have to defend in, in different ways than they were. And they're going to try it uh, early in the regular season, in the preseason, whatever. And they're going to have to commit to it because I remember when Milwaukee did that, when they were experimenting with switching uh, mm-hmm. 2021 season, 
that is when they won the title. And that was the reason why they won the title was because they were able to kind of bolster what they already did well. The Nuggets need to do the same. Yeah. uh, Schematic issues aside, um, defense, um, I've never thought great offensive players need to be great defensive players. I think they need to just know what they're doing. That's it. Um, because you don't want them spoiling their offense with their defense. Um, my philosophy on that is, is I think pretty proven throughout the years. Two way players are rare. Two way players are rare. That's why they are superstars. They are rare. And all you need, like Kawhi Leonard's don't grow on trees, but you see the wear and tear he puts on his body from working so hard on both ends of the floor, right? And my philosophy has always been, you need a guy. um, This goes for Jamal. This goes for Mike. This goes for all the other, all the players on who are questionable defensively. You just need to be competent and know where to go. Uh, Mike has struggled with knowing where to go. The desire is there. The, the, the synapses aren't firing in the, in the, in the way that they need to. And some of that comes with repetition. And unfortunately for Mike, he hasn't had any repetition. Uh, he's played 100 games, something like that. And yeah, something, it's like 150 or so. Yeah. And it's not a lot of ton of games in five years, four years, you know. So it, it's you're you're counting on someone who just really hasn't played. He's missed two full seasons, basically. So. If they're able to get to the point where Mike isn't um, being incompetent, that's all you need. You don't. I don't. In this expectation, you need him to turn into the um, the, uh, the the reincarnation of Bruce Bowen is is complete nonsense. You do not need that. You just need him to be just semi competent. That's it. And maybe he can get to that point. And that's that's my hope this year is that he can just progress to the. The, the competency range rather than excelling at defense. Let's take a break. We are a really great Nuggets conversation here. We are going to transition into uh, some, some entertainment conversation after the break. But first, mm-hmm. summer is here. There's no better time to make your first bet with Superbook Sports. Along with his usual vast betting menu, Superbook already has a lineup for every pro football game this fall. Plus, when you make your first deposit on the Superbook app or sign up at Superbook.com, they will match 100% of your money up to $500. It's never too early to start thinking about football at Superbook Sports. Place your bet. Start winning today. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700. Pickaxe and Roll, Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. I'm joined by the legend himself, the King of Thornton, Jeff Morton. Uh, Jeff, I think you've done a great job over the course of your Nuggets tenure, your, your Nuggets media tenure, by making it not just about basketball. And it's very important, I think. It's something that I haven't necessarily learned and applied as well as I probably should, but 
sticking to sports is bad in all aspects. We can, I think we can agree about that. <laughs> yes. um, but for just your, your general uh, life, sticking to sports is also really bad. It's, it's, it's important to be holistic. It's important to be uh, a, a fully formed human being. So right. I kind of spoke about this at the end of the last podcast. I, I think it's just important for everybody to be able to discuss. It's important for me to be able to discuss on a podcast and talk about some of my other interests in life. And one of those interests is what people watch, what people are streaming. I right. like like the, the the common man and woman. Uh, they they love salt of the earth. The, yes. Yeah, the salt of the earth. We <laughs> love to be entertained in from in front of a screen. That's our that's our goal in in life most of the time. And and that yeah. that'll manifest, I think, in movies and TV shows. For for me, it's video games. Even like, I I now do audiobooks a lot of the time. I think I've listened to like. 45 audiobooks over the course of the last mm. three years or so. It's been great. I've, I've really, mm. I've really enjoyed my time there. And I'm a big fantasy guy. I'm a big, uh, I'm a big, uh, fiction person who, who likes to be transported into another world entirely. And I honestly think that a lot of people sort of share that sentiment for, for a variety mm. of things. But, uh, real quick. What was the first memory of a book or a movie that you had uh, where you were just fully immersed and you were fully just invested in whatever it was? Um, the, the Empire Strikes Back in 1983. Uh, my dad took us to see it. Um, you could argue E.T., um, E.T. played for a long time. Um, my parents divorced in 1982. And so obviously, whichever parent gets the kids that weekend, um, they take this kid. So, you know, that, that they get to go see a movie. And we made our dad take us to see E.T. about 50 billion times to the point. <laughs> <laughs> To the point where I think he's just like he, the, the movie was memorized by him. He could recite the lines. Um, and uh, uh, next year was Empire Strike Back. Um, so yeah, both of those movies for kids. I mean, I'm not a Star. By the way, I'm not a Star Wars fan. I don't. I don't. I have seen none. I repeat, none of the new movies. None of them. I haven't even seen any of the TV shows. Nothing. I have I I haven't devoted time to it. I just it's not doesn't interest me. But in 1983, I was a big fan of Ewoks. So there you go. <laughs> I love it. I I can't believe you went to support our mutual friend Trey Mitchell. That's that's just so unfortunate. That's that's <laughs> insane. Uh, no, I uh, I I love. I I just watched the Obi Wan Kenobi series. That was that was really good. We're not going to talk about that one, but. Uh, uh, one of the first memories that I have is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I remember the theater. I remember where I was. And I remember the nightmares that I had for the next month and a half of the Dementors, that where they, they, they have mm. the, the gross-looking hand that kind of wraps around the door. And you just it's, It was a very visceral reaction that I had to something like that. It was the first major memory that I have of just being fully immersed in a medium like that. And I just think that 
that concept is so fascinating because you, you get this way in sports too, where you're at the fourth quarter, you're in a very particular situation where it is just captivating and you have no idea what else is going on around you. It is just you and what's going on right in front of your face. I think there's there's just something fascinating about that. Well, I in 1988, and I remember this vividly. Um, I was do I would stay at a friend's house all the time, and uh, we would watch horror movies because I said, as you do when you're that age. And um, I remember he brought over the movie Hellraiser, which was a child should not be watching. Uh, <laughs> 10 or 11 years old at that time and just should not have been watching that movie. Um, but it, it was really, I lifelong, basically lifelong love of the horror genre. John Carpenter is my favorite director of all time. I, I love John Carpenter and he has influenced everything. And we're going to be talking about a show that he uh, specifically very much influenced uh, here later, but um yeah, that that was it. That was it. That was it. You, you, it became. If, if I'm going to talk about a genre, of film, um, horror is what uh, is I responded most to. But I like every movie. I, I watch movies constantly. I'm always watching movies. It's fun. Like like I think some of it is. I think a lot of people want to find the next great immersion. Where you're you're finding that next thing, and, and it's it was the Star Wars back of the day where you're at Empire Strikes Back, and that was just one of the most emotionally traumatizing moments for people, where they learned that Darth <laughs> Vader. And spoiler alert, everybody: Darth Vader is Luke's father, um, <laughs> and uh, and so that's I, I think about those kinds of moments. Jaws is of course up there like that, but wait, 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 hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Did, would, earlier, did I say Empire Strikes Back and not Return of the Jedi? Yeah, because I meant to say Return of the Jedi. Oh, good. Well, yeah, no wonder you said Ewoks. I was, I was beginning to say. Like, I <laughs> meant to say. Oh my God! There's going to be people screaming, screaming at this podcast. <laughs> Don't come for me, nerds. Do not come for me. I'm an old man. <laughs> I'm an true. old man. Do not come for me. I meant yeah. Return of the Jedi. Okay. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, that that whole "I am your father" revealed did not happen in Return of the Jedi. That's so funny. No. Oh man. Uh, but no, like I think it's just it's fun to be immersed in something like that. And I think a lot of it is escapism. A lot of it is people go and and one of this is this is one of the reasons why I think sports has been politicized in a lot of different ways. Uh, a lot of people would go just to watch the game, and they're just looking to it to take their mind off of what's going on in the world right now. That's that's kind of the narrative that you get on both sides of the of the coin in, in that particular way. But some of it is just, I think people like to root for a story. Some people like to root for something better. Some people like to root for something worse, which I that that is a fascinating uh, image in and of itself. And we're going to talk about some of these series where uh, there's a pretty gruesome and graphic things that happened in, in the three series that I wanted to mention with you here. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one is one that you turned me on to uh, as, as we kind of prep for this podcast, The Old Man. Uh, the next is Stranger Things and the next is The Boys. Uh, 
all three of those I think are just fascinating. But which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with Stranger Things because there's a story with that, the, particularly this last season. Uh, you know that article I wrote last week? About yes, I do. And I, I, I meant to, to talk to you previously before the podcast if you wanted to talk about the article. We can, we can bring it up. I, I, sure. I, the re- that's the reason I wrote it. Um, I wrote this article about how I lost the ability to communicate with my uh, colleagues um, because I'm the only gay person who covers the nuggets. And it occurred to me um, after the Jokic no homo incident um, that it was it, removing the incident that I couldn't communicate or talk to anyone I was with about any sort of level of feeling I was having. And it just completely killed my joy of covering the nuggets. I'll, I'll 100% is exactly what happened. Um, but the catalyst for this was the character of Will Byers in season uh, four of Stranger Things and how they nuanced him and made him very clearly gay and very clearly in love with his best friend. And it made me realize that's the way it was back then. It was, this is the eighties. It's just the way things were. And it was a very accurate portrayal. Long story short, it made me look back at my life and think about critically about things that I have done and things that I have approached in my life and the ways I'm, because it, it was such a reflection of me. I had to, I had to, I had to do the uh, introspective thing. I had to, I had to go down that road uh, that my dad used to say, uh, introspection is the mother of depression. And I, I, which is, which is, uh anyway that's my dad uh but um so i'm like i'm like i had to do it i had to go through it and some of that was the catalyst for that article was me unpacking a big part of me that people were like wondering why i was so disconnected from nuggets coverage well that's why since 2018 i've been just basically a husk and it was started by this what i saw was a mirror reflection of of a dorky 80s kid I, you know, I wasn't in the Dun- Dungeons and Dragons or anything, like that, but I was, um, you know, just a nerd. I, I was, I, I love music, love music to this day it's that music drives me. Sure. And I love finding new bands, but same thing as movies. And we're going to be talking about TV shows and stuff like that. But that was me. And it made me go look at that. So it's amazing how uh, really what is a, 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 a show that is basically geared it's like a, it's like a steven spielberg doing stephen king steven mm. spielberg um doing john carpenter that is exactly what it, it is it's, it's like the kids in danger but uh there's the wholesomeness of of uh steven spielberg and the you know like uh like the goonies like a richard donner movie like the goonies those things like and that's another one by the way when i was a kid the goonies that okay. was that that really immersed me in movie making but that's it and so though but stranger it's amazing how and and that's the first time and i don't know if you've ever had this right that's the first time i've ever seen a a, a uh a, a 
TV series or a movie or anything like that portray something that was reflective of something that I could identify with. I got managed to go through my entire life without really having that sort of thing happen. And then I reached the jolly old age of 44 and suddenly I'm getting, a, you know, a crisis thrown at me <laughs> just in my middle age. I'm not, I wasn't ready for this. Well, honestly, I thought that's why you're wanting me to watch the old man. So you could have me kind of relate to what you're <laughs> feeling consistently. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't do that when I'm drinking water. I, <laughs> that almost went everywhere. <laughs> uh, well, I, I saw a funny tweet. Uh, Stephen King actually tweeted this after watching season uh, uh Stranger Things season four, episode eight. And he's like, I'm, I'm kind of scared to, to watch the next episode, uh, which coming from Stephen King, that's, that's a pretty high praise for sure. Right. Uh, and, and so it's just fascinating. Like I, I remember watching Will kind of go through that and, and was just in pain watching him during that situation thinking man because there are there are so many kind of nuanced things in this in that series uh that that really kind of portray the 80s in that way and how drastically different it is from from 2022 and and Mm -hmm. it's it's not so far back that you can't like you can look through the look through a looking glass and then see okay it kind of looks like kind of looks like what our world looks like right now but there are so many and like that that just seemed it was so visceral and so I, i'm not surprised that, that you had that reaction i'd have to think about some other shows where i had some sort of reaction kind of flashbulb moment where it, that was me in that situation i'm not sure if i've had that yet so maybe i'll have to wait until 44 too you know it's a it, well hopefully it won't take that long um but uh uh there i was thinking about it today in fact and i'm like I, it's it's not specifically necessarily this you know, obviously it's a fantasy show that features a place called the upside down this is not something that we're going to be able to really extrapolate out to reality but it is firmly and very firmly rigidly based in the 80s it is staked its flag in the 80s and one of the things i, I actually did a podcast about this one of the things i love about it is the portrayal of the the will byers character it would have been very scary and very dangerous for him to say he's gay it would yeah. have been extremely bad and i actually like the fact that they're doing that i like the fact that they're portraying it true to the way it was because i'll i'll, I'll be honest with you this is a, a a a show that is marketed towards um, a family, so it's basically all ages. It's an all ages audience for this thing, and it would be very easy for them to give them the Gen Z payoff, which is everyone has the emotional affirmation. And if they remain true to the eighties, it's not going to come. And I don't know if people are prepared for that sort of thing right now because uh, people's brains are not trained for that. We need the yeah. emotional ext- emotional satisfaction of having a resolution, or at the very least, having a satisfactory res- resolution. And I don't think we're going to get that. And I think people need to to kind of mentally prepare for that possibility. I I think that's perfectly fine. I but I understand if you're like a seventeen to twenty two year old watching this, and you're trained on different shows that 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 give you that emotional payoff. I can understand why that would upset you. 
I did like, and you, you said it earlier, that it is definitely more geared towards families. Some of that, like, I think it's healthy to show a character like Will in kind of a family show style context because I think it opens up just how difficult it was for a lot of people and kind of gives a lot of information with that. Uh, it's, you'll see that with, with a variety of other shows, I think, that that sort of layer in those traits that, that I think there are certain segments of the community that, that it was really, really difficult for them at that time. And I, I'm sure you, you relate to that extensively. Uh, a show that is not uh, related to family values, I think, is The Boys. Uh, that's, uh, that's definitely one where immediately in that show, and if, if you haven't watched the show, if you haven't watched the series at all, then I implore you that if you're okay with gore, uh, you should watch it. Like, I know that sounds awful, but like, uh, it is, it is one of those shows that you will think about the world a little bit differently. And then like the superhero style world a little bit differently having watched this show. It's a, it's a cynical show is extremely cynical. It is. You could tell uh, this is like, and I I told my friend, John Reedy, this, that it is a show like it was it was it, it almost it was like it was tailored towards gen xers because there's just a just a cutting edge of cynicism and uh nihilism because nihilist is extremely nihilistic show cloaked in sarcastic humor like everything it, it is just like it's hard. To, if I was going to ever describe this show, I, c- I couldn't adequately do it because it's superheroes who are all extremely flawed, extremely flawed. They are superheroes only in might, but they're not in virtue. And it is it is a just a combination combination of that aspect and uh, the the just the you're talking about the gore the the, the opening scene of the third season. There's there's something that happens that yeah i i just i was not prepared for that okay and it set the tone for the rest of the season i am not going to spoil it but it set the tone for the rest of the season because that was taking everything from the first two seasons that was just like 20 times farther (laughs) now jeff hasn't watched the entirety of season three so people don't spoil it for him but uh, even in season one like the, the opening scene of the show is is immediately thrusting you into this cold reality of what a superhero world could look like. Yeah. And and like I, I think I could spoil it to people now. Uh Huey's girlfriend at the time dies in the most disgusting, <laughs> awful way possible uh at the hands of a superhero. And it was just it had to be traumatic. It had to be just I, for, for Huey, but like it was just just traumatic for the audience too, because you you immediately are, are thrown into this where you know okay this is what this show is going to be like. Uh, it is drastically different from Stranger Things, drastically different from anything that I le- that I've ever watched before, and yet I love it because I think <laughs> it, it 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 walks this line between disturbing, discomfort, and hilarity. And it's 
on that threshold and sometimes past that threshold a little bit too much. But if you don't push your audience and like comedians talk about this all the time, but if you don't push that line, then you're, you're never going to get a genuine laugh. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I don't, I can't, I don't think I've ever seen a show like it. Um, and it really does a good job of skewering, skewer, skewering, skewering, um, hero worship, superhero worship specifically. Yeah. And there is no doubt that this is a critique of marble and, and a critique of all of the culture that surrounds superhero movies that are, that are everyone has to like now. And it is almost like they're, they're like trying to, and we're talking about mirrors from the uh, last, uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, stranger things. And this is kind of a holding up a mirror to society. Like, Hey, this is, this is like the way this could go. And obviously superheroes don't exist, but we worship them in our culture, the movies that they're constantly producing uh, in, in the boys and the, 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 the TV shows and the, the merchandising and all of that stuff is it not only a critique of superhero worship, but a critique of, of consumerism. Everything is being consumed. These superheroes are loved because they can buy their merch, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fascinating the way they faith. They've layered in all of this sarcastic satire that is just, it's meant to directly conflict. Like it, it goes right up against the MCU, like you said. It goes mm-hmm. right up against. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a lot of current society things that I think are are generally portrayed that way as well. Mm-hmm. But it's it's awesome. Like I, I think people should definitely watch that one. And one that you turned me on to, as as I mentioned before, was the old man. And yeah. that was one that I had never heard of before. It's it's definitely kind of. Like I think Stranger Things, I think is like that that A tier popularity. The Boys is like B tier popularity, where it's still pretty popular, but like it's not to the level of some of these blockbusters. The Old Man is, is like C tier or D tier in terms of what people have heard, and yet I think it might be the best series of them all. Oh, it's so good. Have you talked to Gordon about about The Old Man yet? I ha- he has no idea that I've been watching it. Okay, because. <laughs> It is, it is, and let me give you a story. First time I ever saw Jeff Bridges in uh, something was Star in 1984, which is, if you haven't seen Starman, it is a very, very good movie that he got uh, an Oscar nominated for. He plays an alien in it who comes to Earth and it, it turns into a road movie and stuff like that. It's another John Carpenter film, actually. Um, and that's how he has always been in my head. You know, uh, he's Jeff Bridges has always been the guy that I first saw in Starman. So when you look at the old man, this is a guy who's pretty fairly along in age. I mean, he's the same age as my dad and he's doing stuff that you're not expecting. And it is a, fascinating fascinating movie uh, not a movie a, a tv show fascinating tv show just the way and john lithgow is in it too and john lithgow played it, it's a, both of them both john lithgow and jeff bridges are just 
brilliant, absolutely brilliant in the whole thing. And it really is a character study of the two men. And it is, I just love the way they did it. I mean, I just, oh my God, you've only, you've only seen the first three, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm three out of six episodes into it, so I haven't yeah. I haven't gone all the way through. But I, I'm loving what I'm seeing so far. The, the part that I really appreciated for them was the way that they framed the beginning and, mm-hmm. and how they, they started this where they were talking about his health issues, where he was talking about, okay, there's some things that he's seeing. He's thinking about, is he going crazy? Is he going insane? And... Then it's it turns out that's not the truth, or or at least from my perspective, sitting in the middle of this series. So we'll uh, we'll just have to wait and see whether I'm uh, whether I'm crazy or not. But this it's one good. was def- it was the one that was the most real, and followed by uh, the boys, and then followed by Stranger Things. I think, of course, uh, although like they all have these tropes that I think people can really attach themselves to. And everything that they can really pull from. Like you mentioned in Stranger Things, the, the ability to kind of see things through Will's eyes. And for the boys, I, I kind of see things through Huey's eyes in a lot of ways. Like, right. oh my God, this this there's so many crazy things that are going on around me. This is unbelievably stupid. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and like the old man, I think, is is just the it is the kind of culmination of that kind of moving towards that where it's it's so real and that yeah. that was really what stood out to me i mean it, you know that 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 show was in production and then jeff bridges announced that he had lymphoma mm-hmm. so they put it on hiatus and then the pandemic hit and then he uh got got uh covid while he was going through um chemo i think and then I think he came back to finish it once he got through what well, got through the uh, lymphoma. And it's like, that man's tough. That man is tough. And it's like, it, yeah. and, and it comes across in the show. And I think it was renewed for a second season. So um, this story will continue, but it is, it just, I don't want to spoil it because it, if I go too far on it, you'll know. And you'll know what it's about. And but all, all I'll say is that Jeff Bridges, it's a physical performance. Um, there are several fight scenes in it. Um, and but it is about a man who is in a just a tang- a web of intrigue, I guess is the best way to put it. And it is so well done. Um, honorable mention to Dark Winds, uh, another show that I mentioned to you. Um, it is a Native American noir um, set in the 70s. Hmm. And it is really good. Really, really, really good. It's that the, the, the characters are just so good. And I really appreciate, I, I really appreciate Native American culture. And they, uh, the 99% of the cast is Native American. And okay. it's uh, uh, filmed in uh, New Mexico, but it's set in uh, uh, the Cayenta, uh, uh, no- the Navajo reservation up in northern Arizona. And uh, I respond to that because I've been through the, the res. You have to you drive through the res in order to get to uh, Phoenix if you're driving from uh, mm. uh, 
Western Colorado. And if you drive through Denver, you go through the Eastern edge of the, uh, uh, of the res. And it's an, it's a, it's a place that you have to see to believe. And it's, it's a fascinating. And um, I can go on and on about that show. It is so good. Uh, it's, it's noir murder mystery um, slash native American mysticism. And it's all combined together. And I just, it's really good. Well, I will definitely check it out. There's, there's, it's. I think we're fortunate at this point that there's so much great content. And I, I had I had talked to you about saying that I wanted to do some stuff like this, that I wanted to talk about some some streaming and whatnot, and some of the shows that we've been watching. And I was wondering if we were going to kind of overlap on any of the things that we that we liked, and, and yet we overlapped on so many. <laughs> and, and there's just a <laughs> world of other things that we could potentially go into that I think we may try to go into later, either later in the summer or yeah. into the fall or something like that. But yeah. I, I love these kinds of conversations because I feel like it, it is a different layer to the general sports talk that we usually have. All right. Absolutely. And it's fun that we used to do this with Tim Connolly uh, when he was on our podcast. He, in fact, the last time I had him on Nate and I had him on together, um, he actually double booked. He ended up doing, uh, I think it was, they were BSN or was it the DNVR pod or something like that or locked on. It was locked on uh, nuggets with Adam. And mm. uh, he sent a text to Nate and I saying, I hope we're going to be talking about uh, TVs, TVs and movies. Cause I got a whole bunch that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> like, okay. So we devoted the last 45 minutes of the show to just talking about TV, TV shows. I love it. Fire that's festival. Fantastic. I think he was on about. Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course he was. That's that's awesome. Well, <laughs> Jeff, you've been fantastic as always. I love talking to you. It's been Absolutely. it's been a pleasure. Of course, um, you got anything anything coming up that that people should keep an eye out for? Uh, no, on Gen X show, I've got another installment of our my Rolling Stone series. The last one was with Steve Gorman from uh, the Black Crows. Uh, he came on to talk to me about uh, Sticky Fingers, so the next one's going to be at Exile on Main Street, and I'm sure I'll have some sort of in- interview coming up on uh, on CSG. Uh, I got to find the motivation to talk about something on Nuggets related. <laughs> so maybe I, I'll have I, you on. Maybe I'll have you on, and we'll do oh this. Oh God! <laughs> what, what the hell are we going to talk about? <laughs> no, I have no idea. This is why I'm talking about entertainment right now, Jeff. Come on now. Uh, right. Well, I, I'm obviously more than happy to come on. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, for now, everybody, that is going to do for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. I'll probably be back on Friday. Uh, I'm I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about yet, but I'll probably talk about something. (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys very soon.